Hi again, I'm Jack Lessonberry, and welcome back to Politics and Prejudices, the podcast. We all know that Detroit's made a big comeback in recent years, or at least we've been told it has. And it's true that anyone walking around downtown or the midtown area will see streets that look better than they have in decades. But how deep does the comeback go, and what needs to happen next? We're going to talk today with three people who know more about what's happening and what needs to happen than just about anyone. But first, I want to start with my traditional observations of my own. When I first started teaching at Wayne State University in 1993, there were vacant lots a few blocks from my office with homeless people sitting on mattresses. Now they've been replaced by gleaming new and renovated buildings. There isn't any doubt that downtown, or what they now call Midtown Detroit, the former Cass Corridor, looks and feels better than it has in decades. Some of the change has been quite dramatic, but what's this comeback really mean? As has often been noted, the Renaissance hasn't spread to many neighborhoods. While new jobs have come into the city, mostly by being moved back from the suburbs, the percentage of jobs held by Detroiters is actually smaller than it was a decade ago. There's a significant number of poor people, without much education, who are never going to be worked for any of Dan Gilbert's firms. What will become of them? Detroit's been out of bankruptcy and barely in the black for some time now. But what would even a mild recession do to that? The city's still been losing population, even though more slowly. A significant number of young professionals have indeed moved into Detroit, but in many cases their driver's licenses still say they live at their parents' homes in the suburbs. That's because otherwise their car insurance would be unaffordable even under reform legislation enacted this year. Detroit Public Schools endured years of emergency management before, before being reorganized and freed of their bad debt. They have a dynamic new superintendent who gets high marks. But the fact is that nearly 90% of all the third graders are failing the reading proficiency test in third grade that's seen as so uh, essential for progress. And another fact is that most parents in the city don't put their kids into what's now called the Detroit Public School Community District. They put them into private schools or charters or so-called schools of choice in the suburbs. The state funding formula established by Proposal A makes it difficult for Detroit schools to ever compete. Public transportation in Detroit and, into the, and within Detroit in the suburbs is woefully inadequate, meaning many people who need jobs can't get to them. The city also desperately needs to attract new jobs and businesses, and it has something like 23 square miles of land they could sell. But it's mainly scattered in small checkerboard-like parcels, and that makes it hard to attract potential businesses and factories who need sprawling, multiple-acre campuses, especially since the city can no longer use eminent domain to take land for private development. Detroit needs money, people, and more good-paying jobs. Everyone knows that. The problem is, how do you get any one of those three without the others? How do you get Detroit to move beyond the shadow of its past and come up with a viable plan for a sustainable and better future? Having said that, let's turn to three people who really know something about that. I'll introduce them in alphabetical order. Karen Dumas is a communications and media professional who's been well-known and respected in Detroit for many years. She's hosted a number of radio shows, served on many committees and boards, and served as Chief of Communications and Internal Affairs for former Detroit Mayor Dave Bing. John Gallagher has covered architecture, urban development, and about everything else connected with the city for the Detroit Free Press for more than 30 years. He's the author of several notable and award-winning books, including Reimagining Detroit and Revolution Detroit, which ought to be on everybody's bookshelves who pretends to write about the city. And John Moak has been a law professor at Wayne State University for more than half a century, even though he's only 45 years old. <laughs> and he's at least as much of an urban affairs expert as he is a legal one. He served on more panels and boards than I think even he can count, and even ran for mayor twice. He's a very interesting view of what we ought to do about eminent domain. I'd like to thank you all for making time for us today and start by asking each of you to comment on this provocative question, what needs to happen to make Detroit's comeback sustainable? Karen, start with you. Wow, that's a large open-ended question, Jack, but thank you so much for having me. Um, I think, first of all, we need to understand that Detroit is not going to be the Detroit of tomorrow is not going to be the Detroit of yesterday. Right. I mean, it's just not. And I think people need to abandon the idea that it can be. Um, the city has the ability or the capacity for up to 2 million people. And as you indicated in your opening statement, we continue to lose population. Right. Um, I think we need a land use strategy. That's something that we do right. not have. Um, you know, the demolition uh, looks good and it reads well, but that doesn't do anything to enhance the quality of life. I think we need to look at how do we use that land um, to attract and retain residents here in the city of Detroit. Um, when our police officers and people that work for the city don't live here, it sends a message that, well, it's nice to talk about, 
but not necessarily nice to be here. So I think there, there, there are several factors that have to happen. I don't think there's one switch that can be turned to make the city come back, uh, but that's topically one or two. The great journalist H.L. Mencken once said that for every problem, there's a solution that's simple, easy, and wrong. Exactly. You know, <laughs> John Moe, what do you think? Jack, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, it, 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 it's a huge subject, and I think Karen is right on. In terms of... Uh, we need a new approach to uh, what the vision for the city is is to be is like. Um, the Kresge Foundation funded uh, a, uh, a study that produced uh, the Detroit uh, Future City Framework Plan. Calls for the consolidating of some neighborhoods, uh, the increasing of density, and others, uh, clearing of areas for repurposing for various uses, public and private. Uh, that plan uh, was looked at by the mayor in the first, his first six months, and I actually was involved in helping to try to determine how best to integrate the plan into the future vision for Detroit. But after six months, uh, it was decided to set it aside and uh, take a look at it later. <laughs> and I think it's about time that be done. Exactly. Uh, I'd like to speak also to the need for, as everybody has spoken about for many years, to improving education in the city. The only way we're going to be able to keep residents here, attract other residents, and improve the uh, quality of life for those who live here is to improve our educational program. And it's currently, currently inadequate and fractured, although um, I agree that Dr. Vitti, um, the current head of the Detroit Public School System, is doing the best job, it seems to me, that anybody could do. Right, but his, his, his abilities are limited. His abilities are limited by resources. They're limited by uh, having to compete with um, other school, other school op options that are not particularly good for many children. And he also is limited in the, abil in the ability to increase the, uh, the, improve the facilities in Detroit because he has no bonding authority right. uh, to borrow money to uh, deal with the decrepit situation in a number of schools. Exactly. John Gallagher, um, you know, I, for, for years, my, before I walked the dog to wake up, I still started in the morning to drink coffee and read you, and now you're <laughs> retiring from the free press, so I've right. got his coffee. Um, look, I remember being up in Mackinac in, in May, and you talked to people from other parts of the state, and Detroit has more myths about it than maybe other places, and the, what the current myth now is Detroit was in this horrible mess, and now Mike Duggan is fixing it. And... Um, I mean, that, not that that narrative is all true or all false, but sort of, can you give a report card for what's happening, what's happened in the city in the last several Well, sure. Years? Well, it, it, there's two really dangerous myths right now in Detroit. One is that everything's back, we're, it's wonderful, we've totally recovered. The other is that nothing's changed and it's all horrible. In right. fact, we've made, I think, a lot of progress, um, but compared to the size of the hole that we dug over 50 years, right. we, you know, we still have a long way to go. And I think if you look at... Some of the land use stuff that the land bank has done, if you look at some of the improvements that Dr. Vitti has done um, at, at public schools, um, you know, some of the reforms the mayor has done, uh, you know, we have good programs for workforce training, um, for rehab and ready home home sales, uh, uh, first-time homebuyer um, counseling. We have down payment assistance programs, all these really good programs. Um, but they're, they tend to be relatively small scale considering the size of the problem. So land use is a big one. You know, I'm, I'm of the, of the view that you got to, there's no one overarching solution. You got to grind away at about a hundred different things from student debt reduction to whatever. But my two big ones are transit because we got to get people right. to jobs and pre-K, uh, early childhood, because the gap between what a five-year-old and maybe in a disadvantaged family in Detroit um, compared to what some kid at a really advantaged um, family in the suburbs, the difference between them when they get to kindergarten and for, it's it's already two or three years. Unless you can fix that, middle class families of any color are not going to move in the city. Well, and I wanted to add when you talk about changing education, a, a lot of times people always think that it's more money in the system. I I too agree that Dr. Vitti is doing a great job, but I think that uh, there are external attempts to politicize who he is and what he's doing. But what also has to change is the attitude toward education for the people in the system. Now they are saddled with social issues. 
issues, whether it's transportation, whether it's child care, whether they're things that we know nothing about, you know, whether they're coming to school with, you know, inadequate clothing or underfed. Those are issues that all weigh into it. But I think the approach to education, the very people that could help change the conversation about education won't do so because they're benefiting from it. So, you know, I think that at, at some point somebody's going to have to really champion for a conversation that says either you prepare and you succeed or you don't prepare and you fail. And that's right. a conversation that has to happen with the community, and it's not happening. I was asked by a foundation, private foundation, that wanted to give some money to improving education and tried to give them a report and make a suggestion. And I said, I thought establishing a, a pilot school as a community center might be the best way to go because, as you say, these kids need support. They need Some of them need food. Yeah, but when you say, let's do better, for a lot of people, they don't know what better is. Like, what does better look like? And so I think that, you know, but those are people that are in the community that certain people can have that conversation, and they aren't having that conversation. Well, what a, the Detroit Public Schools actually put out a press release. I have the utmost respect for Dr. Vitti, and uh, his deputy is a former student of mine. So I'm, But they put out a press release celebrating the fact that, it's, that they had improved their lack of proficiency in third-grade reading Last year, 89% failed, and this year only 88% failed. I mean, that's still pretty... Got to start somewhere, Got to start guess. somewhere. But um, in any conversation about Detroit, race isn't far from the, the surface. And there are a lot of African-American people who I know who say, this, is, uh, this isn't helping us. Yes, Dan Gilbert's brought people down from the suburbs, and in some cases, they may have taken jobs we had, and, uh, you know, show me how it's helping us. How much truth is in that? Well, I think it's a fair critique yeah. uh, of the city. I, I think that the right. gap between, right. um, you know, some really upscale place in the greater downtown and right. compared to some of our neighborhoods, right. uh, some of the neighborhoods are doing pretty well, actually. Right. Um, but the gap, the gap uh, between sort of the high and the low uh, achievement areas are pretty great in Detroit. And so I think that critique that it hasn't spread far enough uh, it's not absolute, but it but it is a fair critique. John, you've been involved in at least one master plan for the city. How can you do something? Everyone, everyone says, yeah, Duggan hasn't done anything for the neighborhoods. How do you do something for that neighborhood? How do you make the prosperity? How do you spread well, it? <clears throat> Detroit was originally built neighborhood by neighborhood. And right. It declined neighborhood by neighborhood. And, and uh, the way in which it's going to be re- revitalized citywide is the same way, neighborhood by neighborhood. The the mayor needs to begin, and and, and he has to some degree to focus on Air, uh, neighborhoods that are salvageable, that are, are, are needed help, and then develop a comprehensive plan for working with the residents in that neighborhood to address the needs as they see them and to cooperate with the, the Detroit public school system so that you have a total approach to neighborhood development. I think we have to put um, what's occurring in the context of the size of the city. Perhaps a lot of the listeners aren't, aren't aware that Detroit is a very, very large city. It's 100, 140 square miles. You could put Boston and Seattle and Manhattan in there and have space left over. You could. You could put all those three cities inside Detroit and have space left over. And the, and the area that we're talking about now that is, is regenerating in the core of the city is roughly 10 square miles. And out of what, 137 square miles, something like that? Out of 139 square miles. So we still have 129 square miles to go, <laughs> but w- within that 129 square miles, there are still some neighborhoods that are are viable, are are, are good neighborhoods, and right. and they are they are benefiting from the redevelopment of downtown because when uh, residents come to Detroit and they're looking for decent and good middle class neighborhoods, they're they're heading to the in those neighborhoods. So. Indian Village, Boston Edison, Palm, Green Green Acres. Palm, I was at a dinner. Green, Green Acres, Acres. Yeah, yeah. Sherwood Forest, and and uh, we see some uh, some growth also on the west side of Detroit and, and Corktown and and other areas out going out west. But that leaves a lot of a lot of the city in distressed condition, and there needs to be a, a neighborhood strategy that's more potent than it currently is that works with local residents. Uh, to address their needs, to bring what resources are available to those neighborhoods, and I and I do believe that now is the time to to put back on the table the Detroit Future City Framework Plan and and its its um, proposals for repurposing vacant areas of the city and uh, and and attempting to do it. Could you just briefly say what those are? Well, they they are as you mentioned to assemble land so that we have small and large industry that can locate in the city to 
promote uh, uh, free uh, new enterprises uh, in some of the areas, uh, and also to have open vacant land for public use for for parks and open areas that uh, provide recreation for for the local residents. But you know, let me say this: the next Detroit neighborhood initiative, which was actually done under the Kilpatrick administration, right. has been recognized as probably one of the best neighborhood revitalization strategies. So, a lot of the neighborhoods are stable; they have been stable, and I mean in terms of stability, in terms of engagement from residents. Um, but yeah, they certainly feel left out because downtown now is shiny and pretty. I don't necessarily think that it has the um, substance that would, you know, that that would that's going to offer us the stability and the growth that it should. We've given away so many tax abatements and so many, so many much of our fine, our public dollars that you know we still haven't restabilized financially. We've got um, pension obligation payments that are coming up. I have the I had the opportunity to interview Kevin Orr the other day and he said he pressed the he pressed the reset button but we haven't done the things that we need to do to make sure that we're able to you know experience any real financial growth or stability we're still kicking the can we're losing population we don't have a stabilized tax base um you know it's just we're not we're not we're like a person that filed bankruptcy doesn't have a job but now has a credit card so, you know, we're still doing the same things, and I don't think that we could withstand uh, we a recession. We shouldn't talk about our relatives all the time. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but, well, you know, Karen, race is always the elephant in the room with Detroit. It is. Choose to, and you alluded to the fact that some people wanted to politicize the new school, school superintendent. The fact is, we have a new school superintendent who happens to be white. We have a mayor who happens to be white. And... To what extent is this a factor in how people see Well, Dr. Vitti is, uh, I don't know if he's actually white or you see something else, but his, <laughs> his wife is black. Really nice couple. Right. Um, and so he has a sensitivity and awareness of right. of, 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 of the comprehensive um, uh, population that he's dealing with. I do think, in all honesty, that people associated the decline of the city with failed black leadership. It's Coleman Young and Kwame Kilpatrick's fault that the city ended up where it was financially. but. You got a white mayor for the first time in 40 years, and so people are looking at him as the savior. You know, wow, now things are different. The scariest part about that is the spillover into the attitude of people that are now comfortable with coming into the city because they say, okay, we've got this. You guys screwed it up. We can come in here. And and that attitude is, to me, the most dangerous thing. Detroit is, has room for everybody, and I, and I'd love to see a diverse, inclusive city. But we shouldn't be talking about how to— find room to include right. the people who are already here. That's a very you know, awkward that, that, and unnecessary conversation. I, I, before I forget, I want to mention John Gallagher, your newspaper, Trade Free Press, at the time of the bankruptcy, did an intensive look at the financial policies and record of every mayor back to Kavanaugh. And I think even to their shock, they found that Coleman Young had been the most fiscally mm. responsible mm-hmm. in many ways. Yeah, that's true. And um, uh, Mary Kilpatrick, of course, had his, had his pension bonding thing that turned out to be the sort of the final straw fiscally right fiscally for the city um you know i think one thing that that, that helps in the neighborhoods is when you have a um a well-financed well-staffed uh community development corporation in the neighborhoods i mean the neighborhoods that have done well have these you know locally you know focused staffed and financed uh, groups like southwest detroit business association uh the most famous one midtown detroit inc right. under sue mosey um, that's what you need in the neighborhood. The neighborhoods that have those tend to do better. So, you know, West Village, um, you know, Southwest Detroit, Verner Highway, uh, Grandmont and Rosedale, those kind of neighborhoods have sort of been able to build on the assets that they have. So I think that's overlooked a lot. It's not just what City Hall is doing or what the state's doing. It's what the neighborhoods themselves are doing. Now, I have to agree with that completely. Um, back uh, in the day, <clears throat> back in the late 60s, early 70s, when uh, citizens' district councils were formed first, in about a dozen neighborhoods, including Jefferson Chalmers, an area that I'm very familiar with, uh, the city uh, uh, asked the citizens' district councils to incorporate themselves and provided a contract for $100,000 a year to allow them to set up offices and to essentially do the kinds of things that John has referred to. And that contributed greatly to the initial start in Jefferson Chalmers for the redevelopment of that neighborhood. Um, the, the, the issue there is when public money is provided for that purpose, the, uh, the local uh, community group has to be accountable. And they have to be helped, uh, supported professionally right. with some legal assistance and 
accounting assistance so that they can stay uh, within the proper boundaries of uh, operating as essentially a small business. But when that's done, they can really capture the resources and the support of the residents to work with the city to amplify the progress that can be made in stabilizing and building the neighborhood. I've written a piece or two on this over the years that we ought to get back to that, that the city ought to consider in the targeted neighborhoods where they're hoping to make this kind of improvement, that they help create the nonprofit corporation, help finance and support it so that it can do the kinds of things that the neighborhoods that on their own have been able to do that that John has referred to, Grand Mont Rosedale and so forth. You know, um, they but, can do that. They can replicate that around the city. But let me let me just uh, add to that something. Uh, another sort of elephant in the room. I was talking the other day to Kurt Metzger, the demographer who saw the data-driven Detroit. And we're talking about the fact that he thinks, and I think, tell me if I'm wrong, that a lot of these plans for Detroit's future ignore the fact there are a lot of people in Detroit who have minimal education, maybe outside the money economy. He thought it could be as many as maybe 300,000 people. These people are never going to work for one of Dan Gilbert's firms. So, And they're not going to go away. But I think a lot of things I read sort of ignore them and respond to that, John. Well, again, I think that's a fair critique. Um, I think that the the old industrial economy used to take care of those folks because right. you, you didn't even need a high school diploma to go down the street and get a job at an auto supplier or a tool and die shop and get some or on the job. Putting fenders on cars for you. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, and um, and that's changed. So now, I don't know if 300,000 is the right number, but there's a lot of folks who are in that situation. Counting the dependents, I think it was meaning. But yeah, 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 I mean, our workforce um, participation rate is still in the low 50 percentage, the lowest of any big city. And that goes to the legacy of poverty and racism right. and and the loss of the industrial jobs. And that's why when they say, you know, we, we're going to offer d- jobs to Detroiters first. I mean, it's like an empty promise because, unfortunately, many of them aren't qualified. They're either right. undereducated, unemployed, or unemployable. And you're right. They're not taking that into consideration. So when you have an, a, a crime issue uh, like you had at Noel Night two years ago, when you have the issues down um, at uh, the fireworks— that's that's a segment of the community that you know leaders are afraid of, not right. talking to, not engaging, and totally unaware of what their lives are like. So you can't offer any help or a solution without some communication or contact is or engagement anybody, with them. Is anybody doing what needs to be done? Is anybody talking to these people? Honestly, in my opinion, and I and I think I'm getting cynical in my old age, not that old, but a little old. I, I just, you know, we have 77,000 nonprofit organizations in this state, many wow. of which are either based or dedicated to addressing issues in the city of Detroit. I heard someone that had led a nonprofit organization for 20 years. The organization was 50. They were retiring. And they said, I've been here 20 years, but the needle hasn't moved. And they named the, the, the population. They were. Then what have you been doing? Like, why are we always working on the back end of problems and not looking at the contributing right. factors right. like addressing education, the criminal component, you know? I mean, right. and we're not. So we're putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound, and we're constantly— re- I, I'm going through newspaper articles from 30 years ago. We're still talking about the same stuff. We can scratch it out and change the date. So what are we doing? Not enough. Yeah, there are, there are good programs, workforce training and so on, but they're so relatively small compared to the size of the problem. That's the issue. It's and not there are a lot of fewer benefits available for some of these folks than there were. I mean, there's no more general assistance. There's no more. And, John, how do you see it? You worked in Bedford-Stuyvesant with Bobby Kennedy years and years ago. Well, yes. Uh, I was involved in uh, a project uh, that was part of the redevelopment of a portion of Bedford Stavis, and yes, that that at that what they attempted to do there is in in, in rehabilitating a 700 foot long block of brownstones. They attempted to train local residents in the skills that were needed at the same time they were going through the project. They had increased training opportunities for funds were made available, uh, and that really helped some of the residents of the area begin to participate in the in the economy. You know, some people uh, go undergo religious conversion late in life. Uh, I haven't done that, but John Moke has sort of converted me to see eminent domain in a different way. <laughs> and John's looking like, what did but, I do? Because I thought, you know, when I first... I, I, John thinks I'm going to let him explain it, but that we ought to change the law. You know, after Pole Town, after the, that we, the Michigan Supreme Court said that you could no longer use eminent domain to take land for private purposes. I thought, well, that's a great thing when people won't be screwed over anymore. But 
John has a different view of it, which I've, I've been converted to think is right. So talk well, about that. The, the, the poll, in my view, the Pole Town Project has been get, given an, a, a bad uh, reputation. Right. I think it was the right decision. Coleman Young made the right decision. The auto industry was leaving Detroit. Uh, General Motors said they would planning to close two plants, but would stay if the mayor could identify a site. He was able to do that, use them in a domain at the time under the state constitution to assemble it within 18 months. I think the residents on, on the site were benefited by, by that. Most of them, a U of M study suggested almost 90% were happy with the outcome from their perspective. They received full value for their homes plus a, an additional full value amount to buy a home in the neighborhood of their choice. But um, then the Supreme Court more recently in 2004 uh, changed the Michigan, uh, overruled the Pole Town case and, and uh, uh, basically concluded that uh, property could not be taken in the state by government for economic development if it meant transferring private property from one person to another private person. And that was designed to eliminate a future Pole Town. And then two years later in 2006, they, the same group that uh, initiated the Supreme Court decision put a measure on the ballot and the people actually changed the Michigan Constitution to prohibit use of eminent domain for economic development. Now, what that means is, as you mentioned, with all of the uh, parcels in Detroit, uh, the city itself may own what aggregates to 23 square miles. There's probably 40 square miles of vacant land. What that means is that you can't assemble large parcels without negotiating each and every parcel. Right. And uh, that is uh, basically prohibitive in most cases. Because somebody will hold them up for an Yeah, somebody will either exorbitant in price or they'll simply won't sell out, and therefore you can't do the project. You can't do the project. The people who in these sparsely populated neighborhoods won't be able to get the benefits and relocate because the project won't take place. Anyhow, at the same time that Michigan in 2006 passed uh, this prohibition, California, uh, people of California were concerned about the same problem of basically not trusting government officials to use eminent domain in the public interest, but for their friends. So California passed an amendment to its constitution that basically prohibits the use of eminent domain to take a, uh, a home in which the homeowner has lived there for one year or more, but to allow the use of eminent domain to take property for a public purpose and pay fair market value for any other property other than a homeowner's property. So that cuts speculators out. That Is cuts that speculators idea? out. It cuts, it, it just cuts, it, it just, a, th that approach in Michigan would further amend its constitution in my view, uh, would solve the problem Detroit faces in being able to assemble land for uh, improving its economy in the long term. John, what do you think? No, oh, I, I agree largely. I think that there probably were some abuses of eminent domain in the old regime under right, the Poltown sure. regime, but I think the the reaction against eminent domain was part of the sort of the right wing reaction against government generally, and I think it's gone too far. And I think that the recent uh, attempt to assemble land for the Jeep plant on the east side. When you basically have to, you know, um, work with speculators and so on to to get the needed parcels, I think shows the problems. We've gone too far in the other direction, so we need to sort of um, bring it back a little bit toward the middle, so that it can be easier to assemble land. As a Detroiter who lives in the city, what do you think? And it was part; of, it had property in the Graymark project they did. when they when in that acquisition, and that whole thing has still not been developed. Um, you know, because of right. because of problems. I think that, it, and this sounds rather abstract, but whenever you have to rely on human <laughs> involvement, decision, I mean, it's just not going to be fair. And people are going to always feel like, you know, that they're not right. given, you know, a fair deal. I know when the city came in and they were making offers to homeowners in the Graymark area, you know, they, they, were, they were undervaluing them because, you know, some of the homes weren't well kept. They were... Uh, senior homeowners. And it says it's kind of like, you know, with, with the Native Americans, you don't want the teepee, you want the land. Right. Um, but, you know, it pushed Pulte out. They said they never wanted to come back in Detroit again. And so now there are three or four houses uh, on, a, on a parcel of land that should have had market rate houses higher in homes. And it's just, you know, these cookie cutter houses. And so John, I don't know. you talk to high officials in the city. Do you see any, any movement to do something like that? that 
Well, I really don't at this point. I, I don't think the mayor is very enthusiastic about uh, using a, a extraordinary power in, in neighborhoods. Um, we uh, back, to, back to the issue of race. I think the mayor is a white mayor, and he's very sensitive about how he's received in a black community. I, I, I don't see this mayor. I would see Coleman Young acting differently. Right. I would see Coleman Young proceeding ahead. And he'd be trusted, and uh, and he'd be able to have a good chance of making the people understand. Um, when eminent domain is used, now or during Pole Town's time, uh, the uh, the cost of uh, an attorney for a property owner to defend against the action is paid by the city, not by the landowner. I thought I think most people don't know that. Yeah, they don't, and. Uh, Therefore, it's free if you want to turn down the offer. If you feel the offer is less than fair market value, the attorney will be happy to come in and represent you and then, and then attempt to uh, obtain as much as possible. And years ago, one-third one third of what you received in a, over and above the offer had to go to the attorney. Uh, under a change law at the time of Poletown, uh, the attorney's uh, fee is paid by the city and you keep a hundred percent. I think, you know, I don't think you were here yet in 1979, 1980, right, but, right. but it was my, as a young reporter writing about fairly young, late twenties. I think they talk now as if pole town, that area was a very thriving middle-class area. And that's sort of exaggerated. Mm -hmm. it, it, it wasn't that it, there were some nice houses. <clears throat> well, we're some... talking about 400 acres, which right. is yeah. two thirds of a square mile. But, mm -hmm. Uh, a, a substantial portion of it was being abandoned. It was, uh, according to a report in the Detroit News uh, by Jenny Nolan in 1980 um, or so, um, and people were moving away. It was the population was declining. There were blocks that were in standard condition. There, were, but you have to bear in mind that the, the mayor's action was supported by leadership at all levels. I mean, by the archdiocese that, that had to give up a couple of churches and. It was supported by the UAW and by uh, the, the governor and the legislature, state representatives. There was a, there was a group of residents who understandably didn't want to change, and they opposed it. They were helped by Ralph Nader to organize, and Ralph Nader was not happy about General Motors, so there was a lot of right. internal political uh, conflict that, that existed. But anyhow... Uh, um, it, it was a declining neighborhood, and if you look at neighborhoods from that vintage in that area today that were not touched by the eminent domain, they're all decimated. In other words, the question is, what would have been the future of, uh, of that neighborhood if it, if it had not been assembled for uh, the, the uh, economic redevelopment? You know, John Gallagher, Karen used this metaphor of Detroit as being like someone who's uh, doesn't have any money or a job, but has a credit card. But I, the, the one I use is that Detroit post-bankruptcy is sort of like a premature baby. It survived its birth, but it's in, you know, an ICU. And I'm wondering, uh, to use the oldest cliche in the world, the business cycle hasn't been repealed. Someday we'll have a recession. Is Detroit uh, equipped to stay in the black when there's a recession? Well, the municipal government uh, will probably have some problems with that, as will the city as a whole. I think that uh, Detroit uh, has always... Detroit and Michigan have always had higher highs and deeper lows uh, during our economic cycles, and I don't see that that's going to be much different. Um, and I think that the whole, even the downtown boom, which is already kind of slowed down a little bit because construction costs are so, you know, rose so rapidly and so on, um, that I think if there is a recession, even a mild one, it's going to um, slow us down even more. Now, I don't think it's going to stop. I think Detroit is figured out a lot of good ways to move ahead. And like I said, I think I think we all agree we're moving ahead. It's just we've got a very long way to go. Uh, but, be, you know, be, we understand how to get different groups working together and cooperating, um, and we hope that nothing major interrupts that process that's underway. But a recession uh, will will hurt as well as, a, you know, a lot of other things could hurt it. Either of you have any insight? I still think that Detroit downtown is overbuilt and underoccupied. I mean, we still don't have the population. I mean, you can drive downtown and you can look 
unless it's even at lunchtime. I mean, we do not. We have to have something that attracts and retains. We've got to keep the people that have stuck it out here and helped to hold the city together by a thread, as well as attract new residents. And two of those components, again, you know, are education. We, we all agree that Dr. Vitti is doing a great job. I think the chief is doing what he can do with the limited resources that he has. I think that the administration has to prioritize public safety, and they haven't. Our officers are underpaid. They're under ammoed. Um, and so those two issues, people say, well, people come to the city until one or two things happen, until they have children and they don't have a school to send them to or until they get robbed and then they're out. They so say a conservative as a liberal would have been mugged. At, uh, uh, John? Well, let me ask uh, uh, this question. It's intriguing. Um, the Downtown Development Authority was formed in the mid-1970s when the downtown was declining just as all the neighborhoods were. And the, it has a tax increment financing component. And basically, that component allows the uh, DDA to collect all the increased tax revenue from downtown after the, the, the day it was formed, to make it simple. Uh, and now downtown uh, property values are skyrocketing. Right. Uh, the increased tax revenues uh, are, are expanding dramatically. And all these tax revenues are being kept downtown. And when they're kept downtown, they're diverted from going into the city's general fund and to the school system. Now, have we reached a point where that no longer should be the case? You know, where those revenues should now be allowed to flow into the city's general fund and school system to support police and fire, to support education? Uh, or to, or uh, are we still at a point where we should keep all of the... Well, what do you think? I, I, I think we've reached the point. And who, what would have to happen to make that happen? Could the city uh, do uh, it with an ordinance? The, the city, the city uh, under the state law, when the purposes for the formation of the DDA are completed, uh, which was to uh, uh, stem the decline of, of property values downtown, and among a couple other things, that the city can dissolve the DDA. Now, I don't think that the city council is going to step up and dissolve the DDA at this point, but a petition could put the matter on the ballot and allow the people to dissolve the DDA, and I think that would probably be a good idea. How much money would that mean? We're talking, I think, about uh, 30 $40, million, $50 million a year. Karen, were you going to comment on that? No. Well, <laughs> I, I would say, yeah, that money is split up right now. Right. The most recent number is about $10 million would go to public schools, and then there's about six or seven other agencies that would get, get part of it. I think you could make a case that the TIF has served its purpose, and you can eliminate the TIF and still have a DDA, they would do other stuff uh, in conjunction with the city and various other kinds of tax credits. But, you know, I agree that there, there, there could be an organization that would carry on the other functions of the DDA. I think legally you have to just eliminate the DDA because the TIF is an integral part of it, and you couldn't just eliminate the TIF because under state law, it, it, you can't modify the state law. It's all part of it. But if a DDA were eliminated, another organization could be formed to pick up and we already have the, the nonprofit uh, Downtown Detroit Partnership, which manages campus marshes and does a lot of the, that kind of stuff, and groups like the uh, Riverfront Conservancy, which does the Riverwalk. And so there are a lot of groups that could pick up some of this, some of this stuff. And, of okay. course, okay. corporations okay. like Gilbert's can, you know, sure. it does an awful lot. Karen, you mentioned that the, we have a lot of vacant areas in Detroit, vacant storefronts. city... May have hit two million people early in the early 1950s. It was 1.9 million almost in 1950. Probably it was an undercount. Most latest estimate is 672,000. Do you have any idea what an optimal population would be for Detroit? Does that question even make sense? Not at this point, because right. I think it's going to depend on what we do with the available land. Um, and so while we have the capacity, I don't think we have to fill it up. I don't think that we can ever fill it up the way that it that it was. Uh, but we do have to figure out what we're going to do with it. We need to build density. Uh, and I think that we've got plan on plan on plan in terms of how to do it. Uh, but engagement and execution uh, seem to be the holdup uh, for, for either of those plans. And while money is important in terms of infusing back into the neighborhoods, you've got to invest in the neighbors. Um, and that means that you've got, they've got to understand it's a two-way street. It's not government's responsibility, you know, to do certain things that many of them expect. Right. But there has to be willing participation uh, matched with the resources and the opportunity. That's the only way it's going to work because people always say, we need more money. Okay, more money for what? 
John Sossel did a story once, A Stupid in America, that looked at schools that had um, high budgets and they were underperforming when they had schools that had minimal budgets and minimal, you know, decorations and all the bells and whistles, and they were high-performing schools. So it's not just, uh, finances are important, but it's not just the money that's going to make a difference. John? I agree with that. I mean, it, you, you have to really bring the people themselves into the process. You have to, uh, spending money alone, uh, in, unless you can get engagement, you can get commitment. You can get the parents uh, working with the children, the children willing to go to school. Truancy is a big issue in the Detroit public school system. But, uh, you know, all that brought together is necessary to improve the uh, quality of education in the city. I suspect all of us had parents or parental figures who said, you go sit down and do your homework or, <laughs> or you're not going to go outside and play. Some, a lot of kids probably don't have that now. How do you overcome that? It's the value of education. That's what I said early. Nobody, our community leaders, for lack of a better term, aren't having a conversation about what education is and what it's for. People in the neighborhoods don't know what education is for. You go. To, right. This young lady spoke at an event that I was at the other day, and she said, everybody kept telling me I needed to go to college, but nobody ever told me why. So, and so we, you know, we're telling kids go to school, you know, but, but what do you do when you get there? How do I use this to leverage my community, my family, myself out of my current situation? It doesn't have to be bad, but how do you use it to grow? And that conversation is not happening. Fascinating. Um, going back to brief, the education briefly, everybody agrees we need to do better. Mayor Duggan wanted the legislature to give him the authority to determine when every, any new school could open. He didn't get that. Can we fix it, and how can we fix it? Okay. Uh, good question. I think you need to be um, sort of agnostic about the governance models. You have good public schools, good charter schools, and bad public schools, and bad charter schools, and it's not, it's not school uniforms or you know any, any sort of silver bullet kind of things. It's the intensity of the experience in the classroom, to what extent do you value education, as Karen says, and make that available and that get the families involved too? And it's not simply a Detroit problem; it's it's Michigan wide, it's nationwide. So I think that we need to, as you said, we need to get kids to understand that it's valuable to stay in school and that this affects their entire lives, and that that's a community wide issue that we have to work on. Any insights? Well. <clears throat> This this situation in Detroit, where we have Detroit public school system and charter schools, and there's no coordination between the two, and it really makes it very very difficult. At one time, there was a, a I was on the Detroit Board of Education many years ago, uh, and, and it was very t very difficult to uh, to understand what was from the board level, uh, what was happening in the classroom. Uh, there was a notion at the time that the schools should be the heart of the community, that from from the schools. You could reach out and, and get the parents directly involved, and the principals become the key to all of this and selecting of good administrators. And, uh, and, and you could also encourage, uh, uh, have some uh, senior education in the, schools, in, the, in the schools themselves, and you would be able to uh, know exactly. You mean education for adults. Right, for adults. Um, and so the whole, the whole family would have some part of the education opportunity in the educational process. But what, right now, we don't have any coordination where we can make that happen. And I, I think we have to reach out to the family as a whole and uh, convince everybody in the family that education is important and have that trans, trans, translated for the children so they can feel the same way. I think we also need to celebrate the successes. A lot of what has been important uh, in terms of the new perspective about the city of Detroit has been the change in the narrative. The right. media has been on board. Everybody's wearing a T-shirt. Everybody now that used to call Detroit trash is they want to be a, you know. A, Detroit is in Detroit's cool. Exactly. Yeah, it's all cool and hip. So I think that part of that is celebrating, whether it's that 1% increase, whether it's some of the schools stabilizing, whether it's the effort of Dr. Vitti. I think we need to change that narrative so people can stop buying into the past failures of Detroit public schools. Um, I think that would be part of it. People would be more receptive, and they'd see it in a more objective light. And the schools are gaining students again for the first time. Yes, they are. And I think that, you know, I listened to Dr. Vitti in terms of uh, his, his plan to repopulate the schools. You know, you've got people in Detroit that hold on to schools. We don't want to close the schools. We don't because right. this is where I went to school. That, that, 
That's Does, true have everywhere. Any, yeah. I understand, but that, that has no value. So, right. I mean, we understand, as, as, as um, uh, uh, we mentioned earlier, in terms of transportation and some of the social issues, those have to be included as well. But we need to look at approaching the schools the same way we approach the neighborhoods. You know, maybe we need to a different use for those and use them so that they're, um, they're, we're maximizing their impact. Finally, I want to ask everyone to change the topic slightly and talk about something. 25 years ago or so, Dean Rusk, David, uh, not Dean Rusk, Dean Rusk, the secretary, his son David Rusk is an urbanologist. He was mayor of Albuquerque. He's written a lot. Came and spoke at Mackinac. And I talked to him at length. And he said, you know, I said, how do we save Detroit? Are we fixed Detroit? He said, the only way is metropolitan government. Detroit, you have to have a model like um, Indianapolis, like Miami, where you would have you know, cities and suburbs would be one governmental unit. You could have variations. In the case of Indianapolis, the little cities can elect their own mayor. He said, economically, that's the only way. He said the, the problem with Detroit, in his view, was that it could never annex any territory after 1927. It was surrounded by incorporated areas, county lines. So he thought metropolitan government was the way to go. John, what do you think? Well, let me. I've been very much involved in that. Uh, if we could accomplish metropolitan government, I think it would be best for everybody. But, you know, race, as we've talked about, is a big factor. Um, during the Millican administration, I was asked to chair the governor's task force on regionalism and uh, called the top task force. And uh, we had leadership from the, the city and the suburbs and the civic organizations, corporations, 36 different people on a task force. And we concluded that um, basically uh, something like Unigov, metropolitan government, probably was not a be, would probably not be able to be accomplished, but uh, regional governance of, of various kinds, a regional transportation system, a regional right. economic development authority that would bring everybody together in the region, uh, a regional um, uh, health, uh, health pro, public health program. Uh, these kinds of regional single-purpose organizations should be promoted. And... Um, as time went on, everybody bought it. You know, everybody bought in it to it at the time, but it just kind of lost the area. Lost the subject. Lost interest as time went on, and we continued to separate between the city and the suburbs in the seventies and the eighties. But indeed, I think greater regionalism, either at the single purpose level or multi-purpose level, uh, is very much needed. Well, and, they economically make sense in a lot of ways. Well, it does, because you don't have the city and the suburbs competing with one, right. one another, hopefully. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, uh, you know, a lot of state constitutions in the Sun Belt not only allow but encourage annexation of suburban growth, so that in 1950, Houston was about the same size of as Detroit. Now, Houston's about four times the size right. of Detroit, and the same with Albuquerque and, and Phoenix and a lot of other cities that could annex all that suburban growth. And I think that's one of the great tragedies that all the older Midwest uh, Northeast cities, industrial cities were not allowed to do that. And so it just drained away to the suburbs that I think, you know, as John says, I think we need a lot more sort of regional cooperation. We've gotten a little better at it, uh, but we need to do a lot more. Karen, what's your... I, I think it looks good and it reads well, but I don't think it would ever happen. It would make sense, but it would, you know, territorialism, racism, all those things are going to prevent it. And we still ha can't even get together to get uh, regional transportation uh, passed collectively. Um, one good thing is that everybody does come together for the zoo and, and the arts, uh, but uh, I, I just... I don't. I don't see that happening. Well, they're gonna make a try again on transportation. So who knows? But you know, I mean, when when they talked about the queue line, I said, you know, now we're we're putting we're duplicating two failed routes. Like, right. why are we doing? So you know, as long as we keep doing things that, in my opinion, don't necessarily make collective sense. Right. They built the queue line because there was money there to build it. Well, and it's but. and it's cute and it's nice, but my point is, is that you have smart and you have D dot, you know, and why not re re reinvest and make those work, right. you know? I mean, and and they're not. I think the Q line was put there as an economic development stimulant for Woodward, the Woodward corridor. Right. Period. I don't think it was part of a regional system, although it may have been presented as that. I don't think in reality it was, in fact, intended by those who created it to be there. Somebody said it goes from one place where there aren't any jobs to another place where there aren't any jobs. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. John, could they fix the queue line? Is there anything? Uh, no, not really. All you can do is try to impose a new um, regional system on top of it, which would probably be this bus rapid transit. Uh, the queue line was meant to be a demonstration line, and it's great, but now that it's used up the space on Woodward Avenue, 
where you would have another transit line. They basic- talked about having a special lane for RTA buses. Right, right. So now now you have bus rapid transit um, someday, maybe, that stops in New Center, and then you have to get off the bus rapid transit and get on the queue line. So I, you know, the queue line is a blessing and a curse, um, you know, but we need we need a lot more. Any final words, final observations? Anything we haven't touched on in Detroit? But, uh, well, I would just say to continue to grind it out. You know, it right. just we we are making progress. Uh, got a little very long way to go, but just keep grinding across a hundred different fields of endeavor. Just keep grinding it out. Just saying, the churches, you know, we aren't what we should be. We aren't what we're going to be. But at least we're not what we were. Yeah, basically. Yeah. You know, I I think there's more hope today, even though progress in most of the city is slow, uh, than there was seven, eight, nine, ten years ago. And even though downtown is booming and the neighborhoods aren't feeling it, most of them, I think that uh, I still stay in touch with a number of the residents in my old neighborhood. And I think they feel more positive, but they feel on the one hand, but they feel left out on the other. But they feel that there is an opportunity more so today than a number of years ago to to have something good happen. It just isn't yet happening. I think to eliminate a lot of the issues uh, is that we need to have varied voices around the table. I think people making decisions should also have someone that looks like the person who will be impacted by that decision, um, helping to contribute. Because that way, you know, we all live differently. We see things differently. um, And I think that if that were to happen, I think it would eliminate a lot of pushback, a lot of feeling of exclusion, uh, and uh, maximize the result. Because right now, you know, there, there's a very monogamous uh, approach uh, and perspective and voices that are shaping this city, uh, which ultimately leaves a lot of people out. Well, I'm glad we've now solved all the problems. The yes, we did. <laughs> I'm afraid we have to stop here. A big part of me doesn't want to. I find this stuff all fascinating. And I think what we could agree on is what we all need to keep thinking and talking about Detroit and how we can help Detroit. So thank you all. Thanks for watching. You can all, or listening, you can also catch up with both my writing and my essays and podcasts you might have missed on my website and blog, lessonburyinc.com. That's ink as an ink pen, not as an incorporated. If you do, please go to my website and subscribe. The price is right, absolutely free. I want to thank our guests for taking the time to come to our studio here at Startup Nation in Birmingham. And also thank Birmingham's Clinton Baylor, a newly elected councilperson, and everyone else who's donated to help fund the production cost. If you too would help to keep, like to help keep these podcasts going, I'd be thrilled if you could send a contribution to me via PayPal on my blog or via check through snail mail to Zing Media Group, 186 North Main Street in Plymouth, 48170, or message me on my on Facebook or my blog for more details. And in any event, keep watching, listening, and paying attention. Uh, and come back next time. This is Jack Lesnar with the Politics and Prejudices podcast. See you again soon.